This is episode number 139 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the post-presidency and the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump from a truly conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Come to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Later on in this episode of the podcast, we will wrap up, finally, (laughs) the final Ask John Anything of the Individual One Podcast. This will be part three. I never anticipated it would take this long to complete. Uh, Partially, I didn't think it would be three parts, but also I did not anticipate all the news that has transpired in this month of January and the end of the Trump presidency. And obviously now with the second impeachment trial of Trump getting set to start next week, that is scheduled for next Monday, February the 8th, which means that as of this point, it looks like, which is still subject to change, But it looks like we will have two more episodes after this one as we wrap up uh, the Individual One podcast and uh, end with the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Now, there doesn't appear to me to be an awful lot of real drama about whether or not Trump is going to be convicted. Something really dramatic would have to happen for there to be 67 votes in the Senate to convict Donald Trump uh, of the charge of inciting insurrection, not because he's not guilty, not because it's not legitimate. I do believe, contrary to those on Trump's side who claim that this is not a legitimate process, I do believe it's a totally legitimate process. Not only is there precedent, but as I said last week, and it's important to continue to say this because it's very true and not enough people are making this point, if you were to create a new precedent, that a president could not be tried for impeachment after he left office, it would effectively mean the president could do whatever he wanted or she wanted in the last couple of months of their presidency, which is an incredibly dangerous and flat-out wrong precedent and and one that uh, Trump should not be allowed to make. Correct. uh, Simply because his cult is still on his side. And unfortunately, it's very, very clear that the Republican Party is still very much under the control of Donald Trump. There's all sorts of evidence of it. Whatever uh, momentary lapse there was in his control when when, uh, Liz Cheney and nine other Republicans in the House voted to convict him has clearly faded. Uh, Liz Cheney is being punished in Wyoming. Uh, Only a handful of Republican senators in the Senate Uh, effectively uh, voted against stopping this process. There were only five of them, and they were exactly the five that you would expect. So how you get 17 Republicans to vote for conviction seems to be beyond a mystery at this point. But the process is still important. It could, uh, could be interesting, and we will continue to document it for you on this podcast at least for the next couple of weeks. As far as how that trial is going to go, Lindsey Graham, 
made an interesting and controversial statement on Fox News Channel in an interview with former Republican Congressman Trey Gowdy, which um, I want to play for you. Uh, It's a threat. It's a very, very overt threat to the Democrats that if they have a full-blown impeachment trial uh, with witnesses that uh, Graham is going to open a Pandora's box and that the FBI will be called in. And let me preface this, this, I mean, there's so much hypocrisy in the world today, especially in politics, but there's no bigger hypocrite in the world on impeachment than Lindsey Graham. And I pride myself, and I think this podcast has proven this, I pride myself in being able to tell you, you know, who the, the really good guys are, and there are not too many of them, and, and who the, the bad guys are. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? And I think I've done that on this podcast. I, I told you that, uh, you know, Mueller was going to wimp out. I told you that Bill Barr was was sabotaging uh, the Mueller report in a very nefarious and illegitimate fashion. I told you Frouchy was a, a narcissistic fraud. Uh, I mean, you know, I, 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 obviously we've talked a lot about who Trump is. There's been also I told you Mitt Romney was the only guy that was going to vote in favor of conviction. And I thought that that would happen. And I wrote a column urging him to do that. And that's exactly what he ended up doing. So, I mean, I think our, our track record and there are other examples of this is pretty good. Well, one where I've been very wrong in my life is on Lindsey Graham, because when Bill Clinton was impeached uh, back in the ni- late 1990s, I really thought Lindsey Graham was awesome. I thought Lindsey Graham was the most passionate and eloquent voice in favor of Bill Clinton's impeachment. And it was startling to me when I um, met, uh, when I came here to Southern California, and I met one of the fellow House impeachment managers, one of Lindsey Graham's fellow uh, House impeachment managers, James Rogan, who's now a judge. Uh, and, uh, And he made it very clear to me. Off the air. I was interviewing him on the air about his his book, but he made it very clear to me off the air that Lindsey Graham was a fraud. Um, These are my words, but I'm paraphrasing. Lindsey Graham was a fraud. He was the first person to cave once this thing got into the Senate uh, because he wanted to be a senator himself. He was just a congressman at that time from South Carolina and that uh, the first person to capitulate uh, for his own political self-interest was, in fact, Lindsey Graham. And that bothered me greatly. It didn't sh- totally shock me because I have a very dim view of humanity in general and politicians in particular. But it, it really bothered me. But I still, I still felt, okay, there's got to be something good in there. Well, the Trump era has proven that that's, that was also wrong. I mean, here's a guy who warned the Republican Party, if we nominate Donald Trump, we will get crushed and we deserve it. Now, it didn't happen in 2016, but it happened in 2018, it happened in 2020, and it may continue to happen to the future if, in fact, the Republican Party is unable to divorce itself uh, from Donald Trump. And, uh, and so Graham has consistently been a sycophant even after the attack on the Capitol, where he dramatically told his friends in the most exclusive club in the world, the U.S. Senate, that he was done, that he was done with Trump, very dramatically, of course, very few people gave him any credit for that because you can't you can't do that. But but he tried. He tried to claim that, you know, all right, I, I'm I'm washing my hands of this. Well, immediately that turned out to be a fraud. 
uh, he immediately started kissing Trump's ass again. And now here he is still defending Trump post-presidency in a situation which shows dramatic hypocrisy towards his previous position on impeachment with regard to Bill Clinton. And here he is issuing this threat about what will happen if there is a real impeachment trial put on by the Democrats. Let's be clear one more thing. One of the biggest issues in the impeachment of Bill Clinton when it went to the Senate, and, and Graham was one of the most outspoken critics of this, was that the Democrats refused to allow a real trial and greatly restricted the number of uh, witnesses. I believe there are only four witnesses in that trial. They didn't even testify uh, live in, 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 the, in, in the Senate. So the whole thing was a freaking joke, uh, almost like the, the, the first impeachment trial of Donald Trump was a joke from a legal perspective. And so keep all that in mind when you hear this threat from Lindsey Graham on Fox News Channel. If the House managers want to use this as a, a political commercial against Donald Trump and Republicans, and they want to call witnesses now, they didn't call uh, during the uh, impeachment process in the House, this thing could go for weeks or months, and that would be bad for the country. So to my Democratic colleagues, if you vote to call one witness, none were called in the House, get ready for a long trial. Well, we've only got a couple of seconds, but let me ask you, do you anticipate witnesses being called and then being uh, cross-examined? I hope not. They didn't call any in the House. I think we know what happened that day. But if you open up that can of worms, we'll want the FBI to come in and tell us about how people actually pre-planned these attacks and what happened with the security footprint at the Capitol. You open up Pandora's box if you call one witness. I hope we don't call any and we vote and get this trial over uh, next week when it starts. Now, that is a threat that, to me, feels empty. I know from a uh, substantive standpoint, what Graham is referring to is is legitimate. I mean, it, 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 these are issues that should be brought into the trial, whether or not the attack was preplanned. And I don't know so much about how relevant the lack of security was unless there's some evidence that the security helped facilitate the attack on the Capitol. But I don't see what Graham is referring to there as at all exculpatory towards Donald Trump. I guess what Graham is trying to do there is, is say that Trump's speech on the day of January the 6th, saying go over there and fight or whatever to that, to, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but effectively uh, that, that's what Trump told his crowd to do. That therefore, if the, if the plan to attack the Capitol existed before then, then you can't blame Trump for that. Well, that's bullshit. And the reason why that's bullshit is why were people planning, if they indeed were, planning to attack the Capitol to stop the Electoral College from officially counting the votes. The reason why they were doing that is because of two months of lies told by Donald Trump. Correct. And so you don't get to, to, to claim that somehow Trump is, is exonerated or not guilty simply because people were already being provoked by Trump's words into doing this and that you and because therefore somehow well there were plans before the January 6th speech therefore the January 6th speech isn't the cause or the sole cause or the primary cause of the attack on the Capitol that's not how this works this happened over an extended period of time the the so-called big lie 
that was told again and again and again, which fomented this kind of anger, this hatred. You don't do this overnight. Nobody decides to go attack the capital of the United States based upon a couple of words uh, in one speech. This has to happen time and time again. So because because you're asking people or, or telling people in this case to do something incredibly dramatic, it has to occur over an extended period of time. And he needs a lot of help, by the way. There's a lot of people that helped in this, those who enabled him in the Senate and the House and on conservative media. So uh, I don't buy what Graham is selling from a substantive standpoint. I would like to believe that it's a bluff. I would also anticipate that the Democrats are not going to be uh, intimidated by that kind of bluff because their base really wants this to happen. Their base really wants Trump to be convicted. And I've written about this where the the political incentives here are completely upside down. I believe that Lindsey Graham is smart enough to realize it would be better for the Republican Party going forward if Donald Trump was convicted and unable to ever run for office again. Now, there would be downsides to that for the Republican Party. But in the long run, that would be beneficial and would give the party at least a theoretical shot in 2024. If that does not happen and Trump is healthy and still involved in politics, then it's over in 2024. And whatever hope of of a rebound in 2022 is probably out of reach if Trump is the brand for the Republican Party. Graham probably understands that. What's really strange is he just got reelected. He's not going to run for reelection again for another six years. You would think he would have a, at least half a testicle here. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But he doesn't. And I, I don't fully understand why. I don't understand why he's continuing to do this before Trump. But the Republican incentive is all upside down. They're the ones fighting for an acquittal that's against their own self-interest. Meanwhile, Democrats, because their base hates Trump so much, are actually in a weird position of being in favor of doing something that would help their opposition and potentially hurt them. They love having Trump around. They love it. Correct. From a political standpoint, the Democrats do. But their base is going to demand they go balls to the wall here. And so my guess is that there will be at least some semblance of a real trial. And yes, from a political standpoint, what Democrats are probably hoping to do is to further emblazon on the minds of Americans that this still is the Donald Trump party. Look at the Republicans defending uh, this asshole who helped incite an insurrection on the Capitol that resulted in the deaths of several people. And I can see that. I can understand that from a political perspective. And the evidence is overwhelming, as I've already alluded to, that the Republican Party is unwilling or unable to make any significant break from Donald Trump. Kevin McCarthy, the uh, House Minority Leader, actually went down to Mar-a-Lago to hold Trump's hand, and they took a photograph together. I mean, really, un- it's, it's unbelievable. It's just flat-out ridiculous. No need for McCarthy to do that, except just to show the Trump cult that, you know, hey, uh, he's still our president, and, you know, Trump hasn't said anything Uh, You know, he doesn't have his Twitter feed. He hasn't given an interview uh, since any of this happened, really, and certainly not since uh, his presidency ended. And and yet 
Republicans are sticking by him in enormous numbers. A new poll just out yesterday indicate that, indicates that 90% of Republicans want Donald Trump acquitted. You cannot be serious. 90%. A guy who has no current power and in, in, in the real world will never be president again and who uh, you know, has effectively opened the door towards socialistic rule in this country. It's all, it's all under his watch that all this happened. He fulfilled so few of his promises. Where's that goddamn wall he talked about constantly? Uh, why do we still have Obamacare? Uh, you know, the spending is completely beyond a- out of control. The tax cut's going to go away. Almost everything he did is going to be eliminated. It hasn't already been by these Biden executive orders. And yet 90% of Republicans are still totally on board with him. Meanwhile, the rest of the country... A little over 50 percent in most polls indicate that they want Trump convicted. Those are almost all liberals. Those are the people that voted against uh, Trump, and they're going to want at least some semblance of a real trial. So the country could not be more conflicted, more divided. And unfortunately, there's almost no difference, very small difference between this impeachment trial and the last impeachment trial. The only difference is being Trump is now out of office, so the fear of him is slightly lessened. And because of the passion that was incited back on January 6th, I, I actually think that a few Republicans in the House got a, a, over their skis on this. I, I'm, I'm guessing Liz Cheney probably thought that she was going to be the leader of this, this anti-Trump movement or at least a movement to to cleanse themselves from Trump. And, you know, she went diving into it and very few people followed. And now that the passions have faded and it's no longer a major news story and human beings being human beings, we tend to move on, even though it was a horrible situation and even though people died, it's a month later now and the passions are not as high. And, and so now I don't see what the momentum is to try to change that equation. If it wasn't going to change back in, you know, January 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, it's not going to change in February, especially now that Trump is officially out of office. And I said this from the beginning, that this was going to be the major reason why it was going to be so difficult to convict Trump, because there's a good significant portion of the population of rational people uh, you know, Republicans and, and non-liberals who who are going to look at this and go, wait a minute, the guy's out of office. What's the point? Why are we going through this? It just doesn't pass the smell test. It doesn't it doesn't make common sense to a lot of people. Now, I disagree with that, but I can at least understand why that's the visceral reaction that a lot of people have. And that's significant from a political standpoint. And that's why you're never going to get a huge number like in the 60s or 70s is what you, what, what you would need of the general public uh, to be in favor of conviction to change the equation in the U.S. Senate. So that's the situation there politically, but obviously uh, we'll continue to cover it as the trial begins uh, next week. Now, uh, as part of this, <laughs> this situation regarding whether or not the Republican Party is willing or able to move on uh, from Trump. There's a lot of different aspects to this. The media is a huge one. The conservative media is a huge element of this equation. And something interesting happened yesterday 
involving Mike Lindell. Now, Mike Lindell is the guy who owns My Pillow. Now, if you've ever uh, consumed conservative media of, of any real sort, whether it's Fox News Channel or it's talk radio or other conservative outlets, you probably know what My Pillow is. Uh, you know, it's it's a completely garbage uh, product. Uh, I actually endorsed it many years ago in talk radio after uh, doing a conference call with Mike Lindell and a few other talk radio hosts. And I have to tell you, uh, the, I, I came away from that conference call being morally certain that Mike Lindell was a complete whack job, a complete nut, a lunatic, a person that uh, could not and should not be trusted. Now, I did the damn endorsement because I had no choice, uh, unfortunately, and it was short-lived. And the pillows, while they're junk, you know, I used them. They weren't that bad. I didn't, and it's not like I uh, started to get a stiff neck or anything. I slept fine, so whatever. So I, I was okay with that part of it. But from Lindell's perspective, he is a nut, and he is an admitted uh, longtime drug user and a crook. And uh, I mean, he's got a horrendous background. How in the world uh, he got multiple White House visits, public? Public White House visits, praise from the President of the United States. This nut job, all because he has become a conservative icon, not because of his life or his beliefs or his promotion of causes, but because he's been spending so much money on conservative media. That's the only reason. He's basically been single handedly propping up huge portions of talk radio and Fox News Channel. I mean, without him, there would be a lot of people out of jobs in the conservative media. And so he has been the target uh, of a lot of liberal backlash. He got tossed off of Twitter just like uh, Trump did. Even the MyPillow <laughs> Twitter handle got tossed off of Twitter, largely because he's been very adamant about uh, promoting these voter fraud conspiracies and the Dominion voting machines, and it's all bullshit, and there's there's no evidence for it. There's no logic for it. I've explained many times in the past why that's the case. But Lindell went on Newsmax yesterday, and, and Newsmax is interesting because Newsmax has been very successful so far at taking a chunk of the Fox News Channel audience, the most ardent Trump supporters, because Newsmax has still been doing the best they can to to give oxygen to these bullshit uh, voter fraud theories, and they're exceedingly pro-Trump, way more pro-Trump than, uh, than Fox News Channel is. And Newsmax, their programming, to be fair, and I, I know Greg Kelly, who's one of their more successful uh, primetime hosts. He and I get along. I've been on his show. He seems like a nice guy. He likes my work, other than obviously my Trump position, which I find interesting. But Newsmax programming, the quality of it is far better than their competitor, One American News. One American News is a complete fucking joke. Uh, I've been on One American News several times before the whole Trump era. Uh, they're, they're run out of a dingy strip mall just outside of San Diego. Uh, the idea that they're considered a national news network is is just absurd. It's just flat out ridiculous. Um, and so I don't even take them seriously. They, they are beyond propaganda. Newsmax at least 
tries to to create you know a semblance of something that is is legitimate. So uh, Lindell went on um, Newsmax yesterday, and uh, everything got off the rails. And it got off the rails because Lindell, when asked about being kicked off of Twitter, immediately went into what in his mind was the explanation, which is that he's been the one who has been promoting these theories about voter fraud. Well, the anchor, the male anchor on, on Newsmax, clearly and obviously, anyone who's ever been in the business knows when you watch this what was happening. What you're about to hear is him reading a statement that he was clearly told by his bosses you have to read because they are terrified of being involved in a lawsuit from Dominion. Dominion has already been very successful in going after a couple of different entities that have uh, made these false claims about them uh, being the promoter uh, of voter fraud and that their machines uh, somehow gave votes to Biden that were supposed to be for Trump or whatever bullshit conspiracy theory there is. And so what you're going to hear is uh, twice when Lindell goes down this path, the Newsmax anchor trying to read this statement to save their job. And then they eventually leave the set. That's what, what a bunch of, what an incredible wussy uh, this guy was. But uh, here's how, what it sounded like on Newsmax. And the reason why I'm going to play this is one, it's entertaining, but also I just think it shows it is a great example of the cancer that still exists all over the quote-unquote conservative media and what's left of the conservative movement. What, what happened with your Twitter account and the uh, company page? Well, first, mine was taken down because we have all the election fraud with these Dominion machines. We have 100% proof. And then I, when they took it down um, uh, about my, three weeks my, ago, I, and then I, when I put it back up, my personal, I put it... Mike, uh, thank you very much. Mike, Mike, I, you're talking about machines uh, that, that we at Newsmax have not been able to verify any of uh, those kinds of allegations. We just want to let people know that there's nothing substantive that we've seen. And let me read you something there. While there were some clear evidence of some cases of vote fraud and election irregularities, the election results in every state were certified and Newsmax accepts the results as legal and final. The courts have also supported that view. So right. we so, wanted so to talk to you about please, canceling culture, if you will. We don't want to relitigate the, like the, the wait, wait, uh, allegations wait, wait, that you're wait, making, I, Mike, because I'm we, we, we understand where you are. So let me ask you this. Do you think that this should be temporary because it appears to be permanent? Could you make an argument that it is temporary? What? <laughs> could you make an argument that this could be a temporary banning rather than permanent? No, I want it to be a permanent because you know what? They did this because I'm revealing all the evidence on Friday of all the election fraud with these machines. So I'm sorry if you okay. think it's not uh, Mike, it's real. I, I, can I ask our producers, can we uh, get out of here, please? Uh, I, I don't want to have to keep going over this. Actually, we at Newsmax Mike, have not been able wait, to verify any of those allegations. Wait, that you're, you're, Mike, okay. hold on you a second. Everybody hold on a second. Mike, Mike, hold on one second. Uh, let's talk a little bit about just what is happening overall in terms of censorship. cancel out my company and myself in this country. It's cancel culture. So there you have it. That's the current state of the conservative media and movement. What began 
in the mid-1990s with Rush Limbaugh and Fox News Channel as an earnest, sincere effort to provide an alternative to the very liberal mainstream news media has now devolved into that, where a flat-out lunatic who uh, has no business being part of or major part of, of the national discourse, who has been given credibility by the former president of the United States and by the virtue of the fact that he's buying a lot of advertising for his bullshit product on conservative media, is making still making completely baseless voter fraud claims, and even Newsmax is forced to shut him down and read a disclaimer because they're afraid of being sued by Dominion. That's pretty much uh, a, a darn good indication of where things actually now stand. And the damage that Trump and the Trump era has wrought. Correct. Uh, because without Donald Trump, none of this would be happening. And this is a huge part of the continuing, probably never-ending price uh, that we will all pay for having sold out to Donald Trump, which is why I never wanted to be part of that, why I was against it from the beginning. I, I always knew that no matter how well Trump did, uh, that the end was going to be worse than the ride that the crash would be worse than the ride. And the ride wasn't that great, and the crash was even worse than I ever uh, possibly anticipated. By the way, speaking of Twitter, and I do believe that this is a very serious issue. Uh, I hate Twitter, even though I spend most of my day on it. It's a contradiction in my life. Uh, the, the issue of Trump's Twitter feed, I think, plays a major, major role in where uh, this discourse is going, where the conservative media is going, where the Republican Party is going. And I was of the belief until fairly recently that Trump was going to get his Twitter feed back. When, I didn't know. But, you know, the guy who runs Twitter, Jack, a few weeks ago, went on Twitter and seemingly was starting to build the narrative that you know, maybe he made a mistake and maybe he, he would go back on his permanent ban of Donald Trump. Well, there's been no further indication that Twitter is about to reverse itself. And Twitter's stock, as of right now, is exactly where it was before the insurrection, the attack on the Capitol, the banning of Trump, the conservative purge. It went down significantly right after that happened, but it is now right back up to where it was before. And if there's no economic pressure for Twitter to do this, I don't see why they would. Because if they did put Trump back on Twitter, they would get all sorts of hell from their woke base. So as of right now, under these conditions, I don't see Trump getting his Twitter feedback, which is a fantastic thing in my mind. Because without Trump's Twitter feed, it really changes the dynamic for what he's able to do and the power he's able to wield, especially on specific Republican senators and congressmen going forward, as well as any future campaign that he might uh, threaten to run. So I, I found that to be a, an interesting thing. I even tweeted uh, where the stock has, has gone and, and where it's been on my personal uh, Twitter feed earlier today, which is at Zygmunt Freud. Speaking of, uh, of a similar situation, it's already very clear that there has been a ratings collapse 
at CNN and to a lesser degree at MSNBC. CNN's ratings are down after Biden has taken office. So in other words, we have one full week post-inauguration to compare with the weeks prior to Biden taking office. Now, to be clear, obviously those were very newsworthy and chaotic weeks, and so it's not a perfect comparison. But in the first full week last week, post-Donald Trump, post-inauguration and all that, the CNN ratings were down in prime time about 45%, which is a huge number in a very short period of time. And uh, this does not shock me because I've, I've been predicting for a while that the liberal news networks were going to get a double whammy here, actually a triple whammy. The first is they're going to lose their Darth Vader. So you lose Trump as the news creator and the facilitator of anger among your most passionate viewers. That's a big deal in cable news now because that's all they appeal to. They just appeal to the people who are most passionate because they don't care about the middle anymore. All they need, you know, CNN's looking to get five million eyeballs, sets of eyeballs on their sets every night. If they do that, it's a huge success. They don't care about the other 320 million people. So they only need those 5 million. And and so, therefore, they're looking for the most passionate, which means, you know, frankly, whack jobs. And how do you appeal to whack jobs? Well, we know. We've seen it uh, over the last uh, several years of, of news coverage from both perspectives, on both sides of the ideological divide. And so when that number goes from, you know, just over five million to just uh, about two and a half million or over just a little over two and a half million, depending on which hour you're talking about in a very short period of time, that's very significant. So the loss of Trump is a big part of it. Obviously, Biden is nowhere near as interesting. Now, what's would be most troubling for me at CNN is it's not as if Biden hasn't created news. I mean, Biden is giving all sorts uh, of, uh, you know, of gifts uh, to his liberal base. He's he's, you know, through the executive orders and everything else. I mean, he is he is a liberal fantasy right now, a socialist fantasy. And yet that doesn't seem to be driving or maintaining the numbers at all. So that's the second part of the equation. The third part, which no one else will ever mention but me uh, partially out of uh, curiosity or lack of imagination and partially out of, uh, uh, of cowardice, is that there's another phenomenon going on here with the liberal viewing base, and that is the pandemic. And uh, they will never admit to this, uh, and I'm not suggesting that this is anything close to universal, but there's a portion of the liberal base that was rooting for the virus during the Trump administration. Correct. That is a fact. I don't know what that percentage is, but it was a significant number of people. I saw it on Twitter all the time where those who hated Trump the most were rooting for the virus because they knew it was bad news for Trump and that therefore that made them feel good. So they had a rooting interest in the virus and they actually liked hearing the bad news. As presumably, as long as it didn't impact them or their immediate uh, friends and family. So now you have a situation where the two things driving coverage, the presidency and the pandemic, are now working against 
CNN and to a lesser degree MSNBC viewership because they don't have Trump as their Darth Vader and a significant portion of their audience is no longer all that interested in hearing bad news about the pandemic because it's now just bad news and there's no there's no silver lining in it for them. So now, now they're rooting against the virus, and they don't want to hear the bad news about the virus. And inherently, that's what the news media has been selling for the last year is bad news. Now, there actually is some good news about the virus, just like I've been telling you for the last several weeks. The hospitalizations continue to go down. The cases in America continue to go down. Deaths will eventually go down if the vaccines are working. We don't know 100% for sure that that's the case yet. But if that is the case, this is all potentially very good news. But the news media is bad at good news, especially on the pandemic. And it's too soon for Biden to take credit because this was actually happening before Biden even took office. And he hasn't really changed anything. So uh, that's my analysis of the CNN ratings crash. And I do find it to be uh, of a particular interest. Now, before we do uh, Ask John Anything Part 3, uh, there's one other story that <laughs> I just have to mention because it's something that we've talked about previously on this podcast and it deals with Trump's golf courses, specifically in Scotland and specifically Turnberry. Uh, for those of you who are, who are fans of this podcast, you, you know that I have always had uh, great suspicions about how Donald Trump was able to purchase the uh, famous Turnberry golf course in Scotland. Uh, this is a very historic, uh, not just golf course, but it's actually a very historic piece of land uh, in Scotland. And some of the most famous British Opens have been played at Turnberry. Now, the Royal Ancient Golf Club has has publicly announced, even though this was known for years because they didn't want to deal with Trump, that Turnberry is no longer going to be hosting a British Open, which has to really be a kick in the groin uh, to Donald Trump because this is something that he really, 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 really wanted to happen. I'm sure was part of the motivation for why he purchased Turnberry. Well, the reason why Turnberry never made any sense to me, is that one, he purchased it mostly with cash, which was very much against his normal M.O. He did so in a time period where he was actually doing the same, he was at a similar time period where he bought uh, Doral in Florida, another very prestigious golf property. Doral, I kind of understand because Doral was under great distress and that kind of did fit what Trump normally does, which is pick up a distressed property for what he thinks is a, is a really good price, but still to do it at the, the, basically the same time period, to do it largely with cash and to do it just before he knew he was going to run for president. That's the part of this that really has never made any sense to me because we're talking 2014. In 2014, Trump knows he's running for president. I know this because of my own personal conversation I had with him outside of the Today Show in 2014. So... So if you're going to run an outsider uh, campaign for president, the number one thing you need is money, cash. Trump has never had cash. So what the fuck is he doing spending enormous amounts of cash? And how is he getting the money? Uh, and, and remember, we're, we're still coming out of a, a horrendous real estate bust in 2009, 2008, 2009. So it never made any sense to me. How did this happen? Now, now, there are possible explanations, but I would like one. And there's been other elements of the Turnberry story 
that have been very suspicious, including the use of the U.S. military uh, and and Turnberry and whether or not Trump was uh, facilitating uh, effectively business towards Turnberry. Now, it's a minor role in this. But interestingly, the Scottish Parliament is about to vote on whether or not to do an investigation of Trump's finances regarding Turnberry. There is a Scottish parliamentarian by the name of Patrick Harvey, a member of parliament, who's urging the first minister to seek an unexplained wealth order, that's a UWO, in relation to Trump International. And uh, part of that is the famous uh, Turnberry course in Scotland. If granted via courts, a UWO compels businesses or individuals to detail the source of their wealth. Trump's Scottish golf courses uh, um, have posted uh, losses in recent years, which is not a big surprise. But here's what here's Harvey's statement that I found to be very interesting. The Scottish government has tried to avoid the question of investigating Donald Trump's wealth for far too long, Harvey told the Scotsman newspaper. There are serious concerns about how he financed the cash purchases of his Scottish golf courses, but no investigation has ever taken place. That's why I'm bringing this vote to Parliament. The government must seek an unexplained wealth order to shine a light on Trump's shadowy dealings. Now, I don't know who this guy Harvey is. He's part of the, the Scottish Green Party. He could be a complete nut job for all I know. But I am very curious to see whether or not anything comes of this. And if it does, uh, obviously, uh, we'll talk about it on the podcast. Now, part three of Ask John Anything. I have asked, asked you uh, several weeks ago to provide questions, and you did a great job with it. And I've never anticipated it taking this long uh, to get through all of them, but I am committed to doing so. Well, so I, I believe this will be our last uh, segment of Ask John Anything. And we begin... Uh, with AJD asking, can the GOP ever get suburban women back? Well, it's interesting that this is the first question of part three of Ask John Anything, because I wrote a column for Mediate, which you can find at our Twitter feed, which is at individual, the number one pod, or you can just Google it, about the issue of how Democrats are playing with fire on the issue of school closings and that the media is helping to contain that blaze. To me, the easiest, most straightforward, most obvious way to get suburban women back is to own this issue of why are schools largely still closed in America. To me, this is an issue that is very dangerous to Democrats because it's something that people are living, breathing, feeling, experiencing in a very dramatic way. So therefore, the news media theoretically has far less influence over people's perceptions. In other words, even morons can figure out that if your kid isn't going to school and you and they're not learning anything and their life has gotten worse, that that's a problem. And now we've got the CDC for a second time. Let's be clear. The second this is the second time this happened. The first time was last summer. The CDC said, yeah, we ought to open up schools. But then Trump came out in favor of opening up schools and Democrats and liberals and teachers unions all flipped 100 percent and went the other direction purely out of a political motivation. That was one of the biggest scandals of 2020. And the media, of course, uh, was completely complicit in keeping that as hush hush as possible. And Trump did a lousy job 
uh, of maintaining the issue. He basically just gave up. I, I, I did a whole podcast episode on how this is his last best hope, and he went down that path, and then he got tired and moved on. Uh, but the, the liberals embarrassed themselves in the fall. And now uh, here we have a situation where the, the number of cases is far, far greater, far greater now in February 2021 than they were in, uh, in September of 2020 when liberals said, no, no, we can't open schools. And now the CDC is saying again, post-Biden inauguration, that we got to open up schools. In fact, there was a there's a video which I tweeted today of a an executive director at the CDC saying that guess what? Not only should schools open up, we don't even need to have teachers vaccinated as a prerequisite for opening up schools. This is the biggest scandal of this entire pandemic uh, shutdown lockdown. Schools should never have been closed. Now I get that we didn't know fully what was going on. Uh, back in March of 2020 when this whole thing began. I get that. I'm actually, I try to be incredibly reasonable and and very willing to accept human uh, frailty and the, the reality that we don't have all the information right at the, at the beginning of all this chaos and, and we panicked. I got all that. But we knew, we knew very quickly, within a couple of months, as proven by what the CDC did in June of last year, that Schools were not a major problem and that keeping schools closed for an extended period of time was going to have massive ramifications. So if there is a path towards getting suburban women back for the Republican Party, it's wringing this issue around the neck of Democrats because it is the teachers unions and the Democrats that are keeping schools closed and we are going to experience devastating consequences for this decision for years and decades to come, the likes of which we have no concept of. And uh, and to me, and it's not just because I have two young kids. I mean, the evidence is becoming overwhelming, overwhelming that the ramifications of this are catastrophic and we're only just now beginning to see the tip of the iceberg. So that's the path. And that's why I say Democrats are playing with fire on this particular issue. Linda asks, will the USA ever split up and what would that look like? Uh, I wrote and written a column about this, although not uh, in, in the detail I'm about to provide with regard to how it would happen. I do believe America is going to split up. I believe America will split up into uh, probably three, maybe four different countries. Uh, it's actually it sounds humorous, but it, it's actually uh, uh, quite telling and uh, easily understood way of looking at this. I believe it will break up much like uh, college football conferences. I think that you'll have the SEC uh, country. You'll have the Northeast, which will be and the Midwest, which will be Big Ten and ACC. They'll be one country. Uh, the mid upper Midwest, they might be part of the same country as the SEC schools. And then you got the Pac-12. They're going to be their own country on the West Coast as well. So you're going to have at least three or four different countries. Now, when this will happen, I do not know. Um, but it will happen. And by the way, school closings may end up uh, being a, a facilitator of this. You may have 
uh, at least two different countries, one country where you have in-person school and one country where you do not have in-person school because of this insane reaction to the pandemic. But that's the short answer uh, to that question. Jason, will Trump and his family face prosecution after leaving office? Well, if you count the impeachment trial, uh, Trump already is. I have no idea uh, on this. Um, my guess is that they will probably be some state, uh, New York City, obviously, uh, prosecution of New York uh, of, of Trump, maybe some of his family members. This I know this is an issue that really excites liberals. It doesn't do that much for me because to me, uh, while you know I, I do have a goal of making sure that Trump is not the Republican presidential nominee in 2024, I don't know whether or not that would even help or hurt. That's what a bizarre world we live in now. You would think that if there was ever a legitimate prosecution, that that might hurt him. But we don't live in that world anymore. So I don't have any special knowledge of that. And it's and it's really not an, uh, an issue that interests me all that much. Uh, Joseph asks, is Trump not releasing all the evidence of voter, voter fraud he knows of? Um, no, <laughs> there is no evidence of voter fraud and uh, there is no Kraken. Uh, there never was. I told everyone that immediately. It was very obvious that everything that happened on election night made perfect sense if you're somebody who looks at the world uh, rationally. Anonymous asks, how will Trumpism and his cult be viewed in 20 years? Um, I love the poorly educated. All I know is what's on the Internet. Uh, look, I, I think they're going to be viewed pretty much like they already are. Uh, uh, I mean, they, as a cult. Um, now, maybe, maybe I'm not understanding uh, viewed by whom. Uh, you know, the mainstream news media would, you know, and basically historians, which are all liberals, are all going to have that view that the Republican Party uh, was taken over by a cult. Uh, they're going to be called racists and xenophobes and nut jobs and conspiracy theorists. And unfortunately, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, it wasn't all that. That's for sure. I don't know what the percentage was, but there's some of it and it's going to be the way it'll be labeled. Uh, so I don't know that in 20 years it'll be much different in that realm. What I'm hoping is that in 20 years, even within conservative circles, people will look back and go, what the fuck was that? What the fuck were we doing? What a, an incredibly moronic move that was. Now, there will be always people who will be invested in what happened. They don't want to admit a mistake. They will claim, well, it was a, a gambit, but we had no choice because liberals were going to destroy the country anyway. This was our last best hope. I hate that argument because I've always viewed the Republican Party, uh, at least in modern times, as the role of defending the country against socialism and progressivism and and now fascism when it came to the uh, the pandemic response and that we were inherently a defensive organization. We didn't have the ability to be offensive because the media is not on our side. Academia is not on our side. Uh, Entertainment is not on our side. The numbers in the Electoral College are, are usually not on our side. And so when you don't have the numbers, if you look at this as a war, you got to be happy with a defensive position. And we were well positioned before Trump to be in a, an effective blocking defensive position. But now the ability to block things has been taken away and the floodgates have opened. Clarence asks, do you feel you wrongly downplayed the threat of the coronavirus? Um, numbers wise, yeah. Uh, but I don't know that I downplayed the threat of it uh, because here's how I view it. I've always viewed 
the coronavirus as a real thing. Uh, I know um, people close to me, or people who have, have died with and of uh, coronavirus, no one particularly young or particularly healthy, but it's clearly real. That's never been an issue. The issue is, how do you respond to a problem? Do you make the problem worse in your reaction to it simply because you feel like you have to do something? That's what I believe we have done. And I believe I have been vindicated in that view because I don't think these lockdowns or restrictions have done much of anything. Have they helped on the margins? Maybe. But when you look at the data in Florida or Georgia, uh, two very open free states, and you compare it to places like Illinois, New York, or even here in California, there is no argument to be made that lockdowns work. So maybe it makes you feel better. It didn't make me feel any better. Um, you know, but to me, you don't, you know, and Trump, Trump got a lot of flack for this, but he was right when he said that the cure can't be worse than the disease. So what I, when I look at the numbers and I look at the excess deaths from 2020 in America, which is, a, you know, we still don't have all the numbers in yet, but it looks like it's going to be about 13% more than what was expected. And by the way, for some reason, 2020 was expected to be a, a, a year of lower deaths so that actually exacerbates the percentage difference. But if you look at it from the last five years, it's a little bit over 10% over the average. That's a situation that sucks. That's a situation, especially when you consider the average age of those who were dying with or of the coronavirus, which is around 80, medium. Uh, when you consider all that, that's a situation, wow, that sucks. That is not a situation that warrants the destruction of Western civilization and the destruction of all of our civil rights and our entire way of life into perpetuity, potentially, especially when doing that didn't do anything positively to stop it or help it, at least not in the long run. And California is the perfect example of that when you look at California, which was supposed to be the the perfect example example of the liberal utopia with our fascist governor governor newsom our statistics are now basically the same as everybody else's when it comes to number of cases per capita number of deaths per capita and los angeles which is really a liberal utopia is even worse than california as a whole so i don't buy this notion that um that somehow i wrongly downplayed the threat of the virus the numbers when I, one thing I did not anticipate was how they were going to be able to define these things in a way that were so easily manipulated. I'm not suggesting that there really hasn't been 450,000 people or, or I mean, 450,000 people clearly died with or of coronavirus so far in America in just under a year. That is a very large number as a percentage of the population in comparison to things like the yearly flu, it's almost the same number. And that this is a, a point that no one ever wants to make. Liberals always go, well, my God, it's, it's 400,000 more people than die of the flu every year. Um, okay, but we have a population of 330 million people. If everyone in a country is exposed or vulnerable to something, then you must 
interpret those numbers through the prism of a percentage of the population. Again, especially when the ages are as old as they are now with regard to the coronavirus. So you can feel that way if you want, but I don't believe so. In fact, I, I believe that I've been very vindicated about how this whole thing was going to go down from a political perspective, especially, and in many ways it's been worse than even I anticipated. Anonymous asks, will there be social pressure to wear masks every flu season moving forward? Um, yeah, I, I think masks, that's always been my great fear with masks, is I think there's no logical reason to ever stop wearing them. If they theoretically work, now why, if they work, why are we double masking now or triple masking or quadruple masking? That doesn't make any goddamn sense. And there's no data to indicate in the real world that masks actually work. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think they're invested in masks now. So good luck with that. Enjoy your masks the rest of your fucking lives, people, the people that were in favor of this. And I, so many people, when I objected early on, said, oh, no, this is just a temporary thing. Bullshit. Bullshit. You know how I knew for sure it was never going to be temporary was when people started to compare it to seatbelts. There's a huge difference between seatbelts and, and, and masks for a virus. But you know what a seatbelt law is? It's permanent, never going away, just like the masks. So you enjoy your mask for the rest of your life. Tom asks, uh, how can you uh, ever uh, believe what the news media tells us when we're living in two different worlds of information, what can be done to bridge this divide? Well, Tom, this is m one of the biggest issues uh, that I've been talking about for decades. Written, I wrote a book called The Death of Free Speech, which dealt in large part with this particular issue. Uh, I, I've given credit to Barack Obama for being one of the few liberals to fully understand the implications of this. And I don't have an answer. I, I don't, there is no answer to this. It's only getting worse. I thought, you know, there was a chance that the pandemic might cause such a catastrophic economic collapse that it, it reverted us back to a situation where we were closer to the old media world where there weren't that many outlets. But that has, there's no indication that that's going to happen yet. And so I wish I had an answer. I've been sounding the alarm on that issue for, as I said, decades no one really listened. And and again, which happens a lot considering I'm perceived as a pessimist, uh, to me, it's gotten worse than I ever anticipated. And I wish I had an answer, but I don't. Jake asks, why does everyone just want to hear their point of view and can't be open-minded to facts? Uh, where do you get your news from? Well, this is obviously very related to Tom's question. Because now you can get whatever information you want. You start with a belief that you want to believe, and then you go find, quote-unquote, facts or information to back that up. And there's lots of outlets that are willing and able to give that to you. So if you want to believe that Trump really won the election, you just go to One American News or Newsmax or Internet outlets, and they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And that makes you feel good. People want to feel good. People, Very, very few people want to actually hear the truth, especially if the truth does not fit their preconceived notions of what the truth ought to be. And that is a human reality. And that is why once we got away from a very few number of news outlets uh, that were all basically telling you the same thing and, 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 you know, they were licensed to print money so they didn't have to appeal to nut jobs and fringe groups by making shit up, we were done. It was over. And again, I, I wish I had an answer to resolving that, uh, but I don't. As far as you know, where I get my news from, I get it from everywhere. 
I, I go I go everywhere, and but I have a, a tremendous BS detector, so I'm able to tell okay what's real, what's not, and then you know if I have questions, I delve deeper, and I go you know I go to every source I possibly can. You can't just go from one source. And one of the things that drives me most crazy is when, uh, and this happens both on the left or the right, where somebody immediately discredits a piece of information or even an interview because they don't like the outlet on which it, it, it happened. I mean, that's the one that really drives me crazy. Like if someone does an interview on a left wing outlet, inherently the right says, well, what they said doesn't matter and vice versa if it's on Fox News Channel. That's not the way this is supposed to work, folks. But unfortunately, in this day and age, it is. Uh, Jeff asks, uh, would Trump and his cult have been outraged by the result regardless of the margin of defeat? Yeah, I think we know that because the margin wasn't all that close. I mean, it was popular vote wise. It was about seven million votes and electoral college wise. It was exactly what Trump lost, uh, won by in 2016, which he falsely claimed was this, was this historic uh, landslide. So it really wasn't all that close. Now, yeah, if uh, if Georgia, uh, Arizona and Pennsylvania go in the opposite direction, much like what happened in 2016 with Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, then he wins. But that was not that close to happening. And uh, they were going to be outraged regardless because they believe in conspiracy theories. And Trump facilitated that belief very early on, even before the election, saying the only way he was going to lose is if this was rigged. And we saw the results of that. Uh, Dave asked, will the news media get so bored with Biden that they will go after Hunter Biden in hopes of delivering a more exciting Kamala Harris? No, they they don't think that way. Uh, that's not the way this works. Um, you know, I think they're just going to be patient, uh, knowing that uh, they're going to get Kamala Harris in 2025, if not sooner, if something happens to Biden physically. Uh, but I do not see them being that Machiavellian that they're going to go after Hunter Biden somehow. Uh, so that gets rid of uh, Joe Biden. I don't even know how that would get rid of Joe Biden to begin with. But um, nice, nice try. But but no. Anonymous asks, what is your plan for saving the Republican Party? Will people leaving New York and California make them change their very liberal policies? Well, um, you know, it's interesting about people leaving different states for for another state. You know, I hear a lot of uh, people in Texas complaining about all the people from California coming to their state. And somehow that's making Texas more like California and more liberal. Well, that doesn't make any fucking sense to me because the people who are leaving for political reasons are not liberals. <laughs> liberals love it here. It's the conservatives, or at least more conservative people, less liberal people, who would be leaving. You wouldn't be leaving for Texas if you were a liberal. So that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, as far as the, uh, the migration across the country, if I was uh, in charge of the Republican Party, ha-ha, hee-hee, uh, and I don't even you know, I don't even know how you would do this logistically. But here's what I would. Do. The first thing I would do is I would figure out a way to get the the one point two million people in Los Angeles County here in Southern California who voted for Donald Trump, who have absolutely zero political power. That's one point two million votes for a guy who had no chance of winning the state, uh, who's who's politically toxic in this area. So there's 1.2 hardcore Republican voters in Los Angeles County. You got to figure out a way to get half of them to move to key states. You got to figure out a way. If you could get 600, those 600,000 people, and by the way, they'll have kids and, 
you know, other relatives with them. So, you know, over time, this would would grow further votes. But if you could get them to move to Arizona and and maybe a few in Texas, because Texas needs some support and uh, to Georgia and getting them to move to Pennsylvania would be the most difficult part, uh, given the given the weather. But if you were able to spread 600,000 of those Trump voters out, uh, that would do a significant, significant damage to the advantage that the Democrats have in the Electoral College in uh, in presidential elections. Now, that's more of a fantasy. Um, Long term, uh, you know, the only the only way I see the Republican uh, Party being saved is if you somehow get rid of Trump. You're going to have to suffer for that, at least in the short run. And you've got to figure out uh, somebody else who can be the standard bearer uh, for the party and obviously a a viable Republican nominee in the future. In my mind, the next 12 years, barring a catastrophic event, which could easily happen, the next 12 years are gone from a Republican presidential standpoint. It's not till 2032 that Republicans have a shot. Uh, at winning the presidency. And uh, and in my mind, if I'm running the Republican Party, I am talking to Tim Tebow and Tiger Woods uh, every day uh, because they're the only guys that could be someone who would be a, a game changer uh, in this celebrity-driven world uh, where, uh, where both of them would appeal to incredibly important elements of the populace that the Republican Party currently cannot touch. Now there might be pipe dreams, but if if you want, if you're looking in the long term, uh, Tim Tebow and Tiger Woods, though, those are the two people that uh, I would be putting everything into uh, for 2032 or 2036. Um, Anonymous asks, "Will America ever have a socialist revolution?" Uh, yes. Well, we're already seeing it. Uh, but I believe here in California that in the next, uh, I don't know how long, and I'm, and I, you know, I'm always optimistic when it comes to how long these things will take. Unfortunately, they've, they've been taking less time than I thought. But I believe that in California, uh, if I live to a, a normal lifespan, uh, that um, we will see um, things like uh, there being uh, very limited property rights uh, in California. I believe that uh, your race will dictate your ability to own property. I believe that uh, affirmative action will not just be illegal. I think it will be the the way everything is dictated in California. Uh, I believe that um, that for certain ethnic groups, uh, you won't even have to get grades to get into to colleges. Uh, I, because I think what what we're going to see here is a in a huge movement. Because they've, they've already established that we're a racist country. And that's why minorities are not able to succeed as well as other ethnic groups. And so now they're going to have to fix that. And they're going to fix it by government edict. And they're going to punish anybody uh, who happens to not be a member of those uh, selected minorities uh, by taking away the property. And I'm talking about land, uh, obviously taxes. That's a foregone conclusion. Um, and and I do believe that, uh, you know, for instance, what we've seen with the stock market uh, recently with the, the Reddit kids and this divide between, you know, young and old and rich and and not rich I, I, with the stock market going as well as it has. And most people think it will continue to do. I think it creates a very dangerous situation 
where a socialist revolution is almost inevitable. Because when you have that kind of an increase in the divide in wealth, people eventually, especially when, uh, look, we're, I actually think what's, what's going on right now <laughs> is as if, this, as if this segment hasn't been depressing enough. I actually think we're going to look back on February 2021 in, in the future and go, wow, those were the good old days. Because uh, I think we are headed to a complete shitstorm. Uh, economically as well as uh, from a social cultural perspective and that all bets are off when I don't know I, I used to think it was going to be 20 30 years but because of Trump that got moved up to any possible minute um, Bob asked what are Kamala Harris's chances or Kamala Harris's chances in 2024 she's a cinch I mean it's, it's hard to believe that Joe Biden is going to run for re-election I guess it's possible but it, it seems unlikely and she'll be the Democratic nominee. There's no possible way anyone can beat her. In fact, not only will no one beat her, no one will run against her. And so and that's a huge advantage, huge advantage historically to get to be handed your party's nomination. And so who would beat her? Who would beat her? Uh, it, it's almost impossible to come up with a name. It's not going to be Donald Trump. Trump would lose to her. And, um, you know, anybody else that could get the Republican nomination would have too much Trump stench on them. And uh, Nikki Haley is a good example of that. Nikki Haley, you know, might have beaten Kamala Harris without the Trump stench, but I don't see how that happens. Um, Now, would it be a blowout? No, it would be a close election. But Kamala Harris would win in 2024, barring some, you know, black swan event. Jennifer asks, what happened to your friend, the Congressman John Yarmuth, John Yarmuth the Democrat uh, in the House? He's not been on the podcast in quite some time. <laughs> yes, this is, this is a, uh, a source of great personal pain to me. It's not because uh, John has refused to come on the podcast. It's because I haven't even spoken to John in uh, at least seven or eight months. He came on after the p- pandemic began, and if you listen to that interview— you know, he, he was much more in the rational realm of this. Like, it's possible that we're overreacting. And he even said that uh, PGA Tour ought to be playing golf since we're both golfers. And, you know, I thought John was going to be a voice of reason here. Well, uh, John has not been a voice of reason. John has, like everybody else in his party, has completely caved in uh, to the fascists and the whole Black Lives Matter thing, too. And... um and I have purposely not reached out to John. We exchanged texts on his birthday. And his birthday happens to be the day after the election. And this was a very telling situation because I wished him a happy birthday in the morning when it wasn't clear that Trump was going to lose. I thought he was going to lose, but it wasn't 100% sure. And I said, John, happy birthday. I hope you got what you wanted. And he he responded by alluding to obviously the election saying, uh, thanks, John, uh, it's looking better than it did last night. And then I responded, <laughs> I responded, well, I hope destroying the country and our children's lives was worth getting rid of him. And I never got a response to that. Uh, and I and I know why. I never anticipated I was going to get a response to that because that was a shot across the bow. And I think John knows exactly where I'm coming from. And I think John deep down knows I'm right, that that's what the Democrats did here. 
And I know that if we have a conversation, it might be the last conversation we ever have. We've had a, 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 a friendship through thick and thin for 16, 17 years. Uh, you know, one of my uh, best friends in the world. The relationship means a lot to me, but I have an enormous amount of anger towards uh, what, what uh, John and his party have done uh, to my children and children across the, the country because of this. Uh, we've never had a fight in our entire lives. Uh, in all those 16, 17 years. But this one uh, would be epic, and I don't see how it could possibly end well. So I've tried very hard to avoid it, and that's why I've not asked him to come on the podcast. It, it would be a spectacular interview if it happened. It probably would even make news. But the relationship is too important to me to to uh, you know end it over something like that, assuming he would even uh, come on. I guess my if I had one thing to, to say to John, which were, which expresses my great disappointment is that when the Trump thing came along, people like me stood up and said, no, we're not going to go along with this. This is not good for the long-term best interest of the country, regardless of whether or not we win an election. And, you know, John fully expected that would be my position. He respected me for that position and it actually strengthened our relationship. But when COVID came along, which I perceived to be very similar to the to the Trump challenge on the right, the COVID challenge on the left, nobody, nobody on the left, even among commentators and certainly not among politicians. I mean, basically, maybe Bill Maher for 15 minutes and Naomi Wolf, of all people, a liberal author, seems to be the only liberal willing to step up and say this is bullshit. Not one person. Not one person went against self-interest and said, you know what, uh, my party is wrong here. What we're doing is destroying uh, our country, our values, and our children in a bad situation that's not helping anything. Nobody did that. And John was actually in an exceedingly good position to do so. He's close to retirement. He's, in a, he's a only, the only Democrat in a red state of Kentucky. Uh, and uh, he would not have lost his seat over this if he had, if he had done so. Uh, but uh, even John was not willing or able to stand up against his party on uh, the pandemic response, and that that is that's been very very difficult for me uh, to accept. So that's the, the that's an answer you probably didn't fully expect, but I'm always going to give you an honest one. Last question: Chick asks, "Why do you hate Trump so much, and do you regret not getting on board now that it is clear the Biden administration will be extremely liberal?" Well, uh, no, I don't regret not getting on board with Trump at all, uh, because I believe that Trump is the reason why we have the Biden administration uh, and why the Biden administration is willing and able to be as uh, overtly progressive, liberal, socialistic as they are. And as I anticipated that they would be. This is all because of Trump. And that's why I hate him, because Donald Trump, bottom line, Here's the bottom line of the Trump uh, experiment. Before Trump came along, we were positioned in this country to maintain who we are as a nation for at least another 20 or 30 years. And now, partially because of Trump, partially because of the circumstances of the pandemic, and partially because of the, those two things coming together in a perfect storm during an election year, now it's over now. So we lost 20 or 30 years of still being the United States of America because of Donald Trump and because of his own narcissism and his own incompetence and his own 
attempt to try to govern a nation while being despised by 55% of the voters. You cannot do that, especially in a crisis. And I always said that was my greatest fear. What happens when Donald Trump is president in a crisis and 55% of the public hates his guts, doesn't trust a damn thing he says, you can't function. And I never anticipated this. I mean, I I always thought America was doomed. I never thought we were going to be doomed because of a virus that's, you know, statistically slightly worse than the normal flu. Never, I never thought that, but that would not have happened if Donald Trump had never been president. It would never have happened if Donald Trump had not been the Republican presidential nominee. It would never have happened if a huge portion of the Republican base and almost all the conservative, quote-unquote, conservative media had not sold out to this pathological lying con man. And that's why I will always hate Donald Trump because I blame him for everything that is come happening now and which will continue to happen into the future, probably for the rest of my lifetime and yours. That'll do it for this episode of the podcast and for part three of Ask John Anything. We went a little long, but hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, please remember to uh, subscribe, rate, review, and share this program via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual the number one pod. That's at individual the number one pod. Still, at least two more episodes yet to come next week. We'll review the beginning of Trump's second impeachment trial. Until then, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.